Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell. Uh Today, joining me on the show, uh, another uh, big name in D.C., uh, one of my favorite cities. We often bring you guys in uh, to talk about things. Just uh, a place that I tend to visit more often than not. Um, and so we've got Shantal Singh coming on the show today to talk about uh, Sherry and we just our Sherry week that just passed. But welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, looking good here in Washington, D.C. Um, just finished up a really amazing Sherry week. Can't complain. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I wish, wanted to get you on the show a little bit earlier. You know, that's just Sherry's one of those um, topics that always we, we always looking for the right person to bring onto the show to talk about it. Um, and so you are an industry veteran in D.C. and have been around doing this for quite a while and in many different places. In fact, um, Probably my most lamented closing uh, is Mockingbird Hill. Um, I was there on the way back from Martinique, um, gosh, a while back. It's been a long time now. But uh, yeah, we we decided or we came through um, Baltimore and stayed in D.C. on the way back from Martinique several years ago. And uh, yeah, that was an amazing place. And I suspect I probably ran across you there, but didn't realize it. Very likely. I was there all the time. Uh, ran ran the program with up at one point we had over 100 different sherry options. Although that didn't last. Yeah. Well, I, I understand a, a, a friend of mine in the district um, distributor, he's, you know, kind of, we were limiting the fact that it had closed at one point and he made the comment of like, yeah, it's a fantastic place for like one or two drinks. And, you know, a lot of people just don't see Sherry as one of those things to drink all night long. And that perhaps uh, hurt the, hurt the business of the place, which was a shame because uh, I love, I always liken it to uh, having like set down inside a cask, and <laughs> just just the aroma in that place was amazing. Oh yeah, sherry smells wonderful. We had a we had a nice aroma there. That's true. And we we worked real hard to keep it accessible, so it was never never it didn't we didn't want it to feel overwhelming. We wanted people to learn when they were there to do tastings to just kind of get to know it and see where they where they go from there. How did you get involved in the industry? Because I know you've got a, a pretty deep resume when it comes to wine and your wine education, and, and you focus pretty heavily on education. Uh, you know, how did you get started in the business and, and even more particularly into uh, wine and, and sherry? It's easy to do the math on my end because 2000 was the year <laughs> I entered the industry and I entered as a bartender. So I was I was bartending and I've been bartending the whole time. So I'm still bartending today. And during that time period, I also discovered I really enjoyed learning about wine. So I started pursuing uh, a similar education and re- Got a few different um, levels through certified sommelier through the quartermaster psalms, and I took some other classes. And of course, I ended up becoming a certified share educator through the Consejo Regulador of Jerez. Um, and that just is something that builds over the years because you know you're behind a bar, you, you gravitate towards a certain style or a certain bottle, and you learn about cocktails, and you go with the times and what people are drinking, but also you're learning what people should be drinking, which are exciting, and then. And next thing you know, I'm passionate about Sherry and teaching and traveling a bit of the country and teaching classes and um, holding events, Sherry events, and of course, bartending events. And I've been doing that for 20 years. I think I read a long time ago, um, something to the effect of like, if you're a screenwriter, you should always like set your specialties of your screenplays, like in a place that you want to spend a good chunk of time in case it gets optioned. And I think that that uh, you choosing to become the sherry specialist um, sure sure gives good reasons to travel to Spain. Oh yes, I mean 
I'm I look forward to the next time. I did have a chance to travel to Spain five times um, and visit all kinds of bodegas and learn a lot while there. And it's it's truly an experience. You don't get the same experience. You can kind of study and hear about sherry and go through my PowerPoint presentation. But until you're at the bodega and you're tasting samples direct from the cask, it's and like getting it from the people who live there and like all the nuance, you really, it just doesn't really sink in the same way. With this, all this knowledge that you've kind of got locked and loaded now, where are you working at the moment? Where can people find you? Because obviously the pandemic has shaken up a lot of things, um, you know, places closed, operating on different service models. Uh, where can people find you now? Are you just out doing education? I'm doing several things. So during the pandemic, I did have the ability to set up a website. And so now I started this program. Uh, after having, you know, couldn't bartend, kind of lost all my opportunities of work. So I call it cocktailsforendtimes.com. And what I did is I set up this way for people to fill out a form, letting me know their home inventories. And then I would give them recipes to make based on what they already have. And also because I was running a literary cocktails program for the last uh, six years now, I kind of include books when I can. So if people like tell me what they love to read, what they read recently, and I try to make it part of the inspiration for their cocktail. And through that, I also did a lot of virtual classes during the pandemic and, um, and then hosted events, a lot of them virtual. As we started opening up again, I went back into the bar on a sort of semi pop in here, pop in there basis that made sense. So back at the Gibson, which is a little speakeasy bar at the in um, on U Street in Washington D.C. and also at yeah great spot I'm sure you've been <laughs> and also at another lo a really great Thai restaurant called Bon Siam where they're like building up their bar program and because they're located in this area where there's all this office space but they don't really get much of a bar seating anymore they're letting me take over the bar a few nights a month to do. Uh, sherry dinners and also more literary cocktails and other types of events. So while I'm not anywhere every weekend or with great regularity, I am doing these fun projects and I can always be reached on my website, which I list my calendar events when I have them. I, I know that your literary cocktails, that's something you've been doing for a long time. And we've had several guests on the show. Um, I know some people you've run across before as well, like a friend of mine, Andre Darlington, that did booze and final and stuff. And just kind of done some interesting pairings and stuff. But you go way deeper than just like, hey, here's a character. Like, I mean, it it's pretty intense the level at which you're pairing your your cocktails and or doing your literary cocktails and building not not pairing, but actually like building out of the the source material. And it's uh, I don't know if I've run across anybody that gets quite so deep into it. Yeah, it kind of evolved that way. When I first started it in the fall of 2015 and called it the Literary Cocktails Project, I was just sort of reading a book or two or several. Uh, perusing through some you know works from one author and then using it as light inspiration and then I decided to delve in deep into just one book and many quotes from the novels would become like their own is their own cocktails and so they kind of became cocktail essays um yep yeah so I don't think a lot of people are doing that it does require actually reading the book and mostly this was about so I could read more and then it really worked out I read a lot more now I think that's the part that, yeah, it's obvious that, yeah, you've read all of these things and so that it comes across. Whereas we usually get kind of these superficial books. Somebody, I mean, obviously, you know, as well as I do that the last five years of cocktail books is just breakneck. You can't keep up. It's, you know, I've got shelves and shelves and shelves of them. And some of them I don't think I've even opened. You know, I try. Don't get me wrong. I try to read everything. I just don't have time. But, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so we have got carried kind of where you came from, but we didn't really talk too much about 
you know, what you're doing with Sherry education there in the district, because it is a topic that, and honestly, I'd like to kind of start back with a very novice level explanation of Sherry and um, kind of let you go through that a little bit since education is your forte, but it is one of those topics that is confusing to even people inside the industry. And we've got a lot of listeners on the show um, and we've briefly touched on it uh, on Sherry with like Jake Parrott, um, but we've never done a whole episode. I don't believe on it. We might've had Moni Puni on the show a couple of years ago, but anyway. Um, yeah. So look, kind of Sherry, what is it at its base level? So we can kind of get into it before we start making, you know, making the cocktails with it and all these things, because there's different categories and classifications that we really, I think it confuse people. Yes, I've come across this many times. So let's let's keep it simple. First of all, sherry is wine. If there's one thing you take away, <laughs> that sherry is wine, and it comes from a very specific part of the world. It's a wine of place. It comes from southern Spain, around Jerez. Jerez, of course, is the meaning of sherry. It's Spanish for sherry. And there's three main towns, and you're in Andalusia, all the way down there in the super heat, 300 degrees, I'm sorry, 300 days of sunshine a year, grapes grown, um, and then there's a few other things. There's like the soil, the grapes, the the history, the 3,000 years of history. The fact that these wines are often fortified and have are a little bit a little boozier than other types of wines, and they also either get aged oxidatively or biologically, meaning with live yeast, and sometimes a little bit of both. And you get all this character, amazing aromatic complexity. They delve into a little savory notes. They probably are the best food pairing wines in the world. And I say that every time and I'm like all sommeliers around the world, fight me, <laughs> I'll take it on. But they're just so adaptable and you have this, what you end up with a range of some very super dry, bone dry, probably the driest wines on the planet to some of the very sweetest wines on the planet. But the majority of sherry is dry and uh, it does get confused because there's a lot of uh, no, uh, connotations or associations out there that all sherry is sweet or sherry's not that great. You only cook with it, which is always fun because cooking with sherry, it already gives you the sense of, wait, is this something that goes well with food? Obviously it does. Well, we had about a 20 year period there where, you know, a lot of what we had access to here in the States and in a lot of areas in Europe as well, really was that like over syrupy, like you buy a, a, a handle of it to throw into whatever pasta you were making. And so it got a bad rap there um, for a reason, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was what we were getting our hands on wasn't really uh, what a good example that represented the category historically. There might be 3000 years of history, but there's really only a couple hundred years of like modern shared history. And a good chunk of that kind of went uh, sort of like quantity over quality at one point in a really particular influential time period for us. Like I haven't actually watched Mad Men, but kind of in that time period where like marketing was a thing and things were coming out huge, there was sort of this, uh, this, uh, this push on some of the sweeter cream sherry styles that weren't as complex as the the dry offerings and that they were made in more bulk options and that type of thing. And that was entering the States. And then the climate around drinking sherry became, oh, well, this is what sherry is versus the fact that the breadth of its range is so much greater. And so that did get a little lost at a time period where, where marketing was becoming huge. I mean, it was also a really crappy time for Riesling, you know, and we're obviously we're still fighting the blue bottle uh, syndrome on that as well. So, you know, when we talk about wine and we think about wine, um, we think of oxygen being the enemy to wine and you're talking about oxidative aging. Um, 
you know, explain how that works a little bit. So we've got the grapes, we've got the juice. Uh, what are we doing from there? Because obviously, um, it, you know, like you mentioned fortification, um, but other than the alcohol content, I mean, there's a lot of, when I would say that when people taste sherry for the first time, they wouldn't immediately um, liken it to a glass of wine that they're familiar with. It kind of does depend on the style of sherry you try at first, because there are some really lighthearted, crisp finos and manzanillas, which have no oxidative aging whatsoever in them, that are like a little, taste a little bit like the ocean, but they have that fun, like crisp uh, stewed apple, but they'll also have like a yeasty sourdough feel to them. And they're just lovely and they kind of unwrap with different types of foods and snacks. And they're just very complex. But on the non I'm sorry, but on, on the oxidatively aged side, which is your main question, uh, those that interact with the air, it is very unique. It's a process that uh, is developed, has been developed over many, many years. Turns out that you can take sherry wines, which is just wine, and then you can add them to a solera and fortify them to a certain degree and then blend them in. When I say solera, I mean add them to a cask that is part of this fractional blending system. And as they interact with oxygen over time, they develop a lot of complexity, a lot of nutty complexity, and they're just delicious. And they unwrap and have finish, and they have a finish that goes on and on and on. And um, we go really well with food. It just kind of depends what you're going for. Obviously, sherry isn't about like juicy tropical notes. Um, you're not going to get fresh, fresh fruit. You're getting sort of these secondary characteristics um, and you'll get fruit, but you get so much more minerality, so many more savory and dried herbs and that type of thing. So the interaction is a little different. So if you're not used to having something that has that nutty oxidative feel to it, it, it kind of feels a little abrasive. But once you get to know it and you have it with food, then it, you know, your palate and your body goes, wait, this makes sense, becomes normal. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I, you touched on some of the tasting notes a little bit, and I think that's probably, um, I mean, that's literally gets my mouth watering. I, I absolutely love Sherry. Um, you know, but that's, um, again, for those listeners out there that aren't really familiar with Sherry so much, I mean, what would you consider kind of the key tasting notes, what to expect? And I know that that's a really big question across the category that it can vary widely, but, you know, kind of some of the go-to um that the tasting notes kind of that are inherent in, in most sherries. You just want to kind of breeze past that a little bit so we can kind of get into some of the categories. They range from crisp, sourdough, yeasty, uh, and tangy, sometimes often hints of chamomile and, and dried apple notes and almonds to to a little bit more like caramel, toffee, mushroomy, earthy, uh, walnuts, and just all kinds of nuts sometimes. And lost a little bit of honey, um, honey without being sweet. Right. Uh, and a lot of baking spices as you get richer and older. Um, and then, of course, the sweeter range of sherries include dried <laughs> dried uh, grapes. So you get more of the dried fruits, including figs, dates, and raisins. So that's kind of the range of all sherry. Yeah. And it, like I said, it just makes me, I, I wish I had a bottle of sherry with me here at the moment. I usually like to <laughs> drink whatever we're talking about. But uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. No one else can see you holding up the glass, but uh, sorry. Uh, no, 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 it's great. Like uh, I, I wanted to point out that you know, as soon as you started talking about Sherry a couple moments ago, even though people can't see your face, like you immediately brightened up and your arms started flailing. You're like, I love this shit so much, it's, and, and it's hard not to, you know. And like I said, that first time I went into the Mockingbird Hill, it was very obvious that was done as a labor of love. It was very obvious that this was like a passion project for everybody involved. So, you know, obviously it's something that you've spent a lot of time 
doing and you know with your wine expertise as well kind of taking this into a, a, a deeper direction but so again I, I want to kind of unpeel this a little bit because it is such a confusing category and we've talked about Madeiras and ports and all these other like fortifications uh, on the show before but um, it's it's when you break it down when you go beyond that right so somebody's going out they're going to buy a bottle of sherry. They've listened to this and they're like, holy shit, Chantal has really got me into this. I'm going to dive in. And they go and then they get, hopefully, to a really nice liquor store that's got lots of options and not just a jug. Um, but they're going to see Fino and they're going to see Amontillado. They're going to see Manzanilla. They're going to see Oloroso. All of these things can get really confusing. Confusing. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 helpful to listen to a podcast or to to uh, attend a shared class and get like a little more comfortable with it. Uh, there are so many different styles. Um, when we speak of them, sometimes we speak about 10, a range of 10. And the, the odd thing about it is that when we talk about finos and manzanillas, we're talking about wines you should have at the beginning of a meal. Wines that should be on a wine list with your Sauvignon Blancs and your Pinot Grigios and your Chardonnays and your Albarinos. And I'm sorry, those are all basic, but... <laughs> But they should be on the they should be on a wine list that you start the day with or you have with fresh seafood or you have with your salad, your first courses, um, and obviously with olives and nuts because those always goes great. And then the the richer sherries and some of the drier sherries like the Montiados pair with almost everything from the first course to the second course to games to soups to um, Asian spicy food that uh, is really a challenge for a lot of other wines and then it's it's really not until you get to the older and richer sherries and the sweeter sherries that should be at the end of the menu and yet all of these get put on a menu at under fortified dessert wines and most of them are not dessert wines <laughs> yeah and that was one of the things that drew me into like I said um, your your sherry program over there at mockingbird because it was like i know so many people myself included that we we hold this fantasy of like one day i'm going to open a sherry bar like it's just everybody in the industry wants to do it we all love sherry and but it's just it's such an uphill battle um as you are well aware of kind of educating everyone and even inside the industry bartenders and all that um but when you start actually talking about production methods is when really i mean we we all get so geeky about that stuff. You know, we want to see how stills work and we want to see how the fermentations go. And I'm a rum geek. So, you know, anything with the, the hogo, you know, especially Jamaican rums and all that. So um, the production is fantastic because it's so unique to Sherry. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about like um, the production methods? And because I, I specifically want to lead into to talking about floor, but uh, maybe we need to build up and, and get to there. So um, I'll let you take the reins there because it's um it's really fascinating and it certainly uh, deserves um, a podcast episode about it. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, it's like oh you know go go listen to a podcast. Well, luckily we have one. Some of the the main characteristics that we associate with sherry on the most general level is the aspect of floor, which is the live colony of yeast that lives with the the wines, and there's also the fortification and the solera blending system. Those are like the two main. Oh my gosh, this is very much what sherry has in spades. It's it's associated with. So floor is a native occurring yeast that uh, will grow on on the wines in the casks, and then it'll kind of coat the wines so that uh, you'll have the top layer of this like yeast protect the wine from oxygen and it'll eat out the sugars and the all the good stuff in the wine that's kind of vibrant and juicy and then um, essentially poo out 
other really amazing aromas and acetylhydes and volatile aromatics that really give you that savory complex, as I mentioned before, that sort of sourdough yeasty, but also the apple skin and that like tangy, almost chamomile and grassy um, almond and all that, all those wonderful things that kind of keep churning. And then you'll get that out of, out of these yeasts. And this, they're just really beautiful. Like a colony of, I believe, four different types of yeast. Saccharomyces is the main, uh, the main scientific name. And they occur at fermentation in the very beginning, like the first fermentation into creating from grapes to wine. And then they also live and then sort of uh, in a different type. Like there's one strain of yeast that's very dominant in the first fermentation. And then over time, and as they're aging throughout the solar system and getting uh, re-topped off and re-topped off and fed new juice and getting older and older, that sort of colony breaks down into different types of like one is a little more dominant than the other and then one becomes more dominant than the other. And they're just a living colony um, creating the complexity in these wines. And then that's that's flour and flour it translates to flour and it's this beautiful yeast that occurs. The wines uh, live at 15% alcohol, either naturally from naturally fermented fermented or fortified. And that and that's new by the way. <laughs> I don't want to complicate things. But as of September, as of September, they no longer have to be fortified if they naturally get to the level of 15%. At 15%, what's amazing about that level is that floor, that particular strain of yeast that is what we really seek out, is going to thrive, but nothing else will. So nothing else will grow there because 15% is too much alcohol for other like things that you don't want in your wine, but floor will. So I always call it sort of like the beast yeast because it's like, I can thrive at this 15% alcohol. And then of course, the other the other style, um, the oxidative style, if you're not using the floor. If you're not wanting the floor to grow on the wine, then you fortify to 17% and then the floor will not grow. So 15% is this magic, 15 to 17 is this magic area where this natural yeast is just living its dream, creating this beautiful wine for us. Um, and then of course the solar system is the other big thing for the sherry, uh, the sherry speak, we should say. And then it's just a fractional blending system where you bottle from the oldest cask and then you top up with the next oldest layer of casks it's like they're called criaderas and you keep topping up so that you just you keep topping up and so if a solera was started in the 1800s you'll always have just a little bit of wine from the 1800s every time you bottle which is always kind of exciting we see that used a lot in um some shady marketing in the rum world but this is where it comes from you know this is where i think that that gets forgotten especially with with rum geeks is that you know this is a very old system that works incredibly well um, maybe not with rum so much, but definitely so with sherry. Um, I want to go back to the yeast real quick. Uh, so is all of this wild or is there inoculate uh, yeast going in at the beginning of the fermentation? It's always a great question. I get this question all the time because um, the the yeast wants to grow. It's it's a yeast. You know what? If you give it the right conditions, which include humidity and the right temperature levels, and you create humidity, I can go into that, but that's a lot of details. In the... In bodegas where they're storing the casks, um, then the yeast wants to grow. Sometimes during a part of the year where it's particularly hot and they're having trouble maintaining, there might be an inoculation, but some houses never have to worry about that. So it's a possibility, but it's not a regular thing. For the most part, particularly during the spring. We're getting the same yeast one way or the other, whether it's being put in or it was naturally on the grapes. But in, so you're saying in certain climates, they just absolutely don't have to worry about it whatsoever. 
As you have new buildings erect themselves around old buildings, you kind of mess with the natural climate of a, of a town. And so sometimes people who have a warehouse, they've always had no problem. Suddenly someone builds a building next to them and they don't have that kind of airflow they used to get. And so maybe they're adapting. They're adapting their new space because if they if they if they still have this warehouse, but now they're their poniente, their westerly wind from the Atlantic Ocean is not flowing the way it used to, and there might be a little bit of a struggle. And so maybe they're looking into inoculation to keep their sherries going. In the meantime, searching for maybe new warehousing or just adapting. I'm not really sure. Some houses, but for the most part, it's it wants to grow. The conditions are are specifically being created just for Florida Five. That's interesting. It's another victim of uh, sherry's. Another victim of urban sprawl. Uh, I hadn't of that you know but yeah absolutely. those winds will be completely their patterns will be completely changed and yeah that's interesting uh to think about just uh, another effect of, of the human population growth um, affecting something that we all all love so much uh you know as so we've talked about you know the, that kind of floor the oxidative aging what does the the oxygen and, and like actually introducing that oxygen to the wine what does that bring out as far as the flavor to it, um, because, you know, we, we often, well, we always hear, you know, oxygen is the enemy of wine. We don't want this stuff. You know, once you open a bottle of wine, you've got to consume it because the oxygen is going to ruin it. But in this particular case, it's doing the opposite. It's making amazing. So what's happening there that, that we don't want to have happen in our you know, bottle of cab? Once again, you're looking at like these sort of secondary flavors that are not going to lose their steam. They're going to build with that that nutty characteristic that you get from uh, oxidation. Um, And over time, as it's blended with new and old, you create a consistency of style and it just it's its its own thing. It's sherry. Um, It's oxidatively aged sherry. And so you don't have super juicy wines that are just sort of getting deflated. They don't have the structure and the uh, the amazing uh, consist, sorry, consistent blend and uh, floor aging that is in the back palate. Um, if you're becoming an amontillado, and or if you're just oxidatively aged and you have a higher alcohol level, and you kind of just are structuring something that's within, like between the wine and spirit world, right? And so it kind of walks both paths, and it just it holds up. It adds so much more complexity, but you wouldn't just take a, a freshly newly harvest wine and just go, hey, let's expose it to oxygen and get the same effect. It requires more age, more time, more blending and figuring out the right the right process. The the average age for the youngest wines, like you have to always have them be at least two years old. Most sherries, when I talk about this, I mean like Finos and Manzanias are more like three to five, five to seven. And then the oxidatively aged sherries are more like seven to 10 on average age. And then it goes upwards too. For example, there are Finos and Manzanillas that are average age 15 years, which give them a different type of quality. But, and then they get upwards too. You can have ones that are like average age 20 years and 30 years, but that kind of age is what we're, what they're doing is they're manipulating the fact that the maturity and like the, the barrels, which are all very old barrels, they like never replace them unless they have to. Are what they're doing, what the wine is doing is creating the barrels versus the barrels creating the wine. And all of this is just different. So it's hard to wrap our head around when we think about um, what barrels do to liquids and when we think about what fresh wine is supposed to be, because this is, this is sort of not fresh. But then you have crisp sailing notes that come off like the ocean and it almost feels fresh in a different way. Well, that's certainly when you talked about the wine creating the barrels, I mean, that's certainly creating some of the most sought after um, finishes, particularly in the rum world. Um, sherry finishes, you know, and hell, 
the running joke is that some of these companies probably don't even empty the barrels all the way out first before they dump their rum in. But, um, you know, you were talking about average age, average age. So how is um, age determined? Do we see age on labels? Do we see uh, that spoken about? Um, because if we're constantly we're running it through the Solera, and, and that's where it has gotten sticky again in the uh, the rum industry is, you know, some unscrupulous um, bottlers, you know, putting a big number on the bottle to get someone's attention. And they think something's 23 years old, no particular company there. Um, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Just figure it out. I don't know. Um, but you know, it, so, you know, there is, you have to kind of average it somehow. And that's what you're talking about. Average age, average age. And we've talked about it on the show before. Um, so how is that, um, is that represented anyhow on the label? Is it even an important thing to note for the consumer kind of going out, grabbing a bottle or for a bartender just getting into it? Well, that's a good question. I can see because it's very confusing, right? We have an idea of what like a vintage wine is. And these are not vintage wines. These are non-vintage wines. So if you see a date on a sherry of a non-vintage <laughs> of a non-vintage wine and there's a date on there, oftentimes it's the it's a few things. Um, it could be the date the Solera started. So there might be like 1800 something and you'll be like, why does it say 1800? This is not from 1800, but the name, but the Solera was started then and they don't get rid of these barrels. The, long, the older they are, the better they are and they keep them going. So that's an indicator of, well, there's a little bit of wine from there, but there might be another age statement. So for example, they might list the Solera date, but then they'll say 15 year. And if it says 15 year or 12 year, then you know you're looking at an average age of 12 or 15. And those are two age statements you have to apply to through the Conseil Regulador and they have to verify it. Like they have to come to your bodega and like make sure you're not making this up and watch your practices and look at all your books and see how you bottle and look at your inventory and stock so it makes sense. And they go, okay, yes, you're allowed to put these age statements. And the same goes for 20 and 30. So there's like 12, 15, 20, and 30. Um, but but most houses don't even need to do an age statement. There's a minimum average age, right? So that's that two-year, but most houses don't do that. It's always a little bit older. It's kind of something you have to know. The average age is usually three to five for a Fino or a Manzanilla, but there are older ones. Um, but they're not going to list those. The only time they will list is if they have a designated we applied for this um, 12 year average age stamp of approval. Um, so that does help consumers to go if they're looking for more for more age to them. But like I said, the Finos and the Manzanillas aren't necessarily designed to be, uh, they're not oxidative wines. They are designed to be like, they're good to go when they're in the bottle. They've been approved because they have the, the minimum requirements already met. And the range of styles, even within each category, is just something out there to explore. Yeah. It's like any wine, you kind of need someone to direct you, maybe a psalm, maybe a wine director of a store to let you know, oh, you're looking for something fresh, you don't want this, or you want something a little bit richer, or then they can point you in the right direction. It's kind of like you just have to know the labels. That's true. Sure. And those numbers can be very misleading, as you just pointed out. Um, so if you just kind of have to know, or they, you know, I've, I was told a long time ago by a distiller that um, he didn't know any of his fellow distillers that wanted to even put age statements on bottles. That that was all the marketing departments. They, they just wanted to make the best possible product and put it in a bottle, but you have to be able to sell it and numbers, you know, get people excited. They think they're drinking, you know, something old and old must be better. We've been fed this line uh, for so many years in the wine world and, you know, or even, um, you know, and bourbon as well. You know, we see these, these numbers on bottles and no one really looks, 
much deeper. And that's where we talked about kind of the unscrupulous uh, bottlers. And so do you feel that, that they're completely unnecessary entirely um, for the most part in Sherry? They're, they can be misleading, not intentionally, but just kind of uh, presenting a, a, a situation that maybe is um, more marketing, <laughs> you know, I mean, trying to get people to buy that bottle, you know, I mean, is it, is that 15 on there? Does it really matter to someone that's going to be buying that bottle? Or should it matter? Well, it matters in the sense that it gives me an indication of what's going to be in that bottle, as in I know what style and how how what kind of length and what that means to the texture and what that means to the concentration of dry extracts over time. And I kind of I get a sense of oh okay, so this is going to taste like this, and it just gives me a little better sense. And so it's not necessarily like this is better, but just lets me know how it's gonna it's gonna feel the texture and how the aromas are going to be versus. Uh, something that's younger. And other times there's places that have, I know one vault, I know one, um, <laughs> I know one sherry that uh, does not apply for an age statement. They could, but they prefer not to because they've always been making this way. It's always delicious and it's close to around 20 years, but they've decided, well, we don't need to do this. It's fine the way it is. Um, it's more of an indication of style to give you what you're going to in the bottle. But for the most part, if you are comfortable with the brand, the bodega, then you can kind of trust their offerings and kind of know that they're going to, I mean, consistency is key. That's how people come back for the same sherry because they know it's going to taste the same. Uh, of course, this is like sherry 101 speak. There are other other things to talk about, including on Ramas and minimal filtering, finding and such that do give you some interesting variations or select bottlings from people there's a couple places that do that, but as far as the standard, it's it's not going to be okay, right? The whole Conseil Regulador says you can't do you can't release a bottle unless it meets these requirements. So they're supposed to be up to par. And then the idea that there's an age statement just gives you sense of well, if you want something older with more maturity, sure. But that's not necessarily necessary, depending on the category that you're going for, right? Because it's a range. We got dry, crisp, party, beach wine. <laughs> to extreme dessert, to rich and nuanced and, and different types of oxidative ways. It's just a lot to take in. So that's why people get a little lost, but it just means that there's a sherry for everybody. Absolutely. It does. And so who, who is the governing body um, in Spain that kind of watches over this industry um, to make sure that, you know, what's in the bottle is what was promised. So it's the Consejo Regulador of Jerez. So, um, Back in the early wine days, uh, modern wine days, you know, um, when people discuss what is wine of place, certain regions in the world, you know, Champagne is the most easy one to think of, realize that people were replicating their wines in other regions of the world and they weren't doing a great enough job and their their whole name was getting abused. So certain um, regulatory boards uh, came up and decided to say, hey, use this. If you use this name, it has to come from here and you have to have these regulations, these minimal things to make sure it is a wine of this place. So in Spain, the very first DO, which is what it's called, um, the Demonación Origin, uh, was established, was for Jerez. Like before Rioja, before any other famous um, Spanish winemaking area, the first one they really wanted to protect was Jerez back in 1935. And so that board is a, a legit board that makes sure they come, they come, they check in to make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. They're harvesting the right per hectare, like amount of grapes and how much they press. They can't press too hard. They can only get a certain volume at most. And they have to be within these standards and they have to be coming from the right vineyards that have the right soil. There's a lot of regulations, which we don't have to go into here, but they're a regulatory body that comes with like um, with Spain. It's the, it's, it's part of their DO system. And it exists for different wine regions. And obviously in France, they have their own system and Italy and such and such. Things are changing. 
we're getting uh, a little bit more knowledgeable about everything that we drink these days. And the last two years, everybody's been sitting at home. And of course, the first four months of that were mostly just bartenders doing instructional videos on Instagram. And uh, live, did you do it as well? You know, I got this smirk. Did you, did you have to, not have to, but did you go online and do some classes uh, since you kind of work in education? I did a lot of private classes. I didn't, I didn't do them just online. I did private classes. I'm kind of an introvert, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> Very introverted. Uh, the, but as things are changing, uh, we're starting to see people experiment with Sherry in ways that uh, historically it wasn't, uh, which we're starting to see some really interesting cocktails coming out of this. And again, we talked about um, your kind of different programs that you've run around DC and with these Sherry cocktails. And again, every bartender and bar owner on the planet fantasizes about opening that sherry bar. And we all love putting sherry in cocktails. It's just fantastic. Uh, you know, how are you seeing things change with bartenders, particularly where you are? Um, Cause you're, you know, working in education so closely with everyone. I've seen a few different things. Unfortunately, as we talk about the pandemic, uh, there was certainly a sherry fallout, honestly, because a lot of bars were uh, not able to keep their programs. Co- craft cocktails was not something that was thriving during the pandemic. You, you take away the bar seating and the community that you have at an actual bar and you also take away what is the expense of when you care so much about a craft cocktail bar, that is more expensive than just putting together some some recipes that are more cost effective, that are going to sell and keep your business alive. And Sherry never quite made the jump to part of that rail, like every bar. When people think of a bar, they go, well, you got to have your vodka, your gin, your rum, your tequila, your vermouth, probably, so you can make your Manhattans and your martini. You know, when you are thinking about or even bringing people into that fold of, of sherry and we're talking about cocktails, you know, how is this treated inside a drink or how do you treat it when you are making a cocktail? Uh, because it does bring so many different things to the table, depending on what you've chosen. Um, but we're, most people are, are not going to choose the most expensive bottle uh, to put into a cocktail. Uh, and so we very often see some like uh, some Finos, Olorosas kind of making away uh, some of the more affordable options into the bar programs. Uh, where do you start when you kind of are, are putting together a list or even a, a cocktail for a new program? I mean, I always start with the classics. I find if I, if I pick up a Fino, I make a bamboo with it, which is basically the sherry martini. And, a, you know, I pick up a more oxidative style and I make an Adonis with it and a sweeter style. Then I make a sherry cobbler with it. And then, and then you explore off of that. And then you kind of decide, maybe I'll make a cobbler with sherry and rum. Maybe I'll make a, a bamboo martini variant, but I'll actually add the gin back in a different proportion, or maybe we'll add another type of bitter, or maybe an orange bitter, maybe we'll add absinthe. And then you kind of keep riffing, but I, I definitely love that aromatic style of cocktail just in general. <laughs> but at the same time, of course, sherry does adapt to a little bit of everything. It's the perfect host. It goes great with so many different types of food, so many different types of spirits. Um, and vermouth, it goes great with vermouth and other fortified wines. So you just you just sort of play around, but you sort of start with those those classic those classic examples, and then you sort of build off. That's that's what I always that's always that's where I start and. And then, of course, there's a really fascinating trend with like the rum and tropical cocktail world, which I'm sure you're aware of, where like the low ABV cocktails, which sherry is becoming very useful, like, oh, someone wants something low ABV, let me make them something with sherry instead of rum. And then you layer that with the dryer and the oxidative. And so you have those three rum drinks now are like three sherry drinks, which I think that's pretty fun. I'd like to see more of that. It is. Is there one particular like base spirit that you feel like it has an affinity for more than others? 
or does it kind of work well across the board because it just brings so much to the table, um, almost like a vermouth, where it's got all of these things where they weren't added in, but you have all of these spices and dried fruits and all these things coming to the table from from the sherry. Uh, is there like any particular go to for me? It's always rum. Like I, I just I think sherry and rum are amazing together. Um, but I also think rum and everything is amazing together. So, <laughs> I mean, we all have our, our just biases, right? So I, I will say that I, the gamut, it just works with a little bit of everything. I do think that sherry and tequila and mezcals go really well together because they both share that affinity for savory. And I just love savory. I love savory elements. I love I love being able to incorporate that. That's me, make something a little extra notch complexity. It doesn't have to be savory like a Bloody Mary, but it just has to have that that excellent dried herb or that really rich minerality that kind of, and they come together. And tequila and mezcal have that in spades. And so they go really well together. I definitely have had a few that um, that I enjoyed a lot, but I might have to take a little deeper dive because yeah, the, it, I can completely see that where you're really getting that kind of terroir out of the uh, agave spirits uh, particularly. Um, so you know, as the pandemic's kind of winding down now, and you've got uh, your hands in so much when it comes to education on sherry and wine and putting together programs and your books and your literary cocktails, you know, what's what's next for you? Um, you know, you're, you're obviously moving full steam ahead uh, with everything that you've got on your plate. Uh, any particular focus that you're kind of bringing to 2022 as we kind of head into the end of the year? I wish I had that kind of focus, Ed. I know, right? I know. I- like, yeah, like I have a clue. Just trying to keep it going. It's 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 its own hustle. How do I get people to love sherry, and then to also make a living and pay my rent with that? Right, right. Every day I ask myself that question and see where it takes me. And so far, I'm, I'm so far I've been living a little bit of the dream, but it it's not it's not going to be. There's no uh, stability there, but I love it, and so I'll keep doing it, and we'll see what where it takes me. No, it's super that you've gotten this far with it because, like you know, we kind of alluded to it in the beginning, but it's it's a tough sell to people to a whole career or a whole bar or anything. It's it's tough, you know, and that's why you don't see a lot of sherry bars or vermouth bars. I mean, like we all love that, but it's tough to kind of convince the dude that just came in off the street that usually just drinks a Bloody Mary or a Bud Light, and then you're like, oh no, we don't do any of that. Here's some almonds and olives, and here's a glass of sherry. Um, so it's, it's an uphill battle, but the fact that you've kind of turned it into a career that's still moving forward, especially right now, I feel like anybody that's still in the business and still operating won. <laughs> you won, you made it through because it, it this last couple of years and, and no secret, you know, I've talked about it at, ad nauseum on the show, but it's been real shitty. And so like anybody left standing. Yeah. Like you are a professional, <laughs> most professional if you've made it through. I mean, I am very thankful that I've somehow been able to continue to do this and that. And there were certainly many times that I was not sure that this would keep going. And I'm I'm thankful and I'm not quite sure how it goes from here. I do want to work on more projects, more collaborations. And I love the food pairing side of it. I'm very wine focused. And so there's always, people always drink wine. The, the love of wine is not going away. That's always changing and adapting. So we will see. We will see. But yes, I'm super, super thankful and very lucky that I can follow my passion and have it be working out so far. Well, you talked about it a little bit at the top of the hour, but as we wrap up here, where can people find you on social media or your website? You know, where can we find out what your schedule is, what's going on, where you're teaching classes? And I highly encourage anybody, if you're anywhere in the, uh, in the district to like attend a class, like get deeper into it because uh, like she talked about a little bit earlier in the, in the program that um, 
there's some really geeky stuff in the middle that we didn't talk about that's I mean, it'll make you fall in love. Absolutely fall in love, just like she is. So uh, where can we find you? The easiest way to find me is on social media and also my website. So the website I started during the pandemic, cocktailsforendtimes.com. Um, that the whole shtick there is whether it's the end of the day or the end of days, a good cocktail is a great thing. I love that. Cocktails for the end times. I wish I would have thought of that. I mean, it took a pandemic to get that. Boom. That just took the end times to come up with a clever URL. <laughs> and um, so I have a, a, an events page. I even started a blog, which was pretty amazing. I always meant to, right? And, and then um, my social media handles are Shinobi Paws, both on Twitter and Instagram. And that's a little harder to to find, but it's easy to, if you know how to spell my name, you can find me. No one really has my name the same. It's easy to find me. <laughs> we'll link you underneath, right? Yeah, there we go. And so it'll be in the show notes and we'll have your website linked through as well. I very much appreciate you coming on the show. I know it was short notice. We've been wanting to do a Sherry episode for a long time. Um, and especially with uh, with everybody's schedules these days, just trying to keep our heads above the water. Uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit and do this. Um, you know, until next time, I, and I, I am definitely going to come visit you, hopefully, in the next uh, in the next few months. Um, actually, uh, my I had to cancel two trips to to D.C., um, in 2020 because I <laughs> bought the tickets before the pandemic hit. And so I'm definitely missing a lot of my friends out there. Quick question for you, actually, because I am going to be teaching a Sherry class in Indianapolis on December 8th. I don't know if that's <laughs> if that's something that you would be able to attend if you wanted to attend. Well, you know what? We do have a lot of local listeners. Do you want to talk about that? Um, is this open or is it a private course? It is made for industry people, um, for wine professionals and for bartenders. So it's, it's more industry focused and... Uh, that is that will be in Indianapolis on the eighth. Super. We will get the details and on the show notes. And so, if you're listening to the show here and you are in Indianapolis, I uh, definitely want to uh, get you in on that because uh, uh, Chantal's a, a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we just barely scratched the surface today. So, again, um, that's fantastic. I'm going to see you here in in a few weeks, then, and uh, definitely we'll come check that out. Um, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, we will see you here soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, guys.